be Romans chapter 16, starting with verse 25. We're going to focus in on what it says on verse 27. The sermon's entitled, Glory to the Only Wise God. To follow along as I read. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I slept like a baby. That's an idiom that means to sleep well, quietly, restfully, all through the night. I think that's a strange one to use considering newborns get their mothers up three, four times a night demanding to be fed. Senator Bob Dole, after he was defeated in the 1996 presidential campaign, they asked him how he handled that loss. And he said, I slept like a baby. I woke up every three hours to cry. Well, as we get older, we often find it harder to get to sleep and stay asleep at night. A Medline uh, Plus article that I read recently addressed this issue. They pointed out that on average, older people only sleep slightly less hours a night than younger people. But the problem is they have a harder time falling asleep. And even when they do, they sleep less deeply and they wake up more often. A lot of this has to do with hormonal changes that come to both men and women as they age. And of course, the article addressed, uh, like all of them would, giving us some simple measures you can take to get a little bit better rest at night. Here's some of them. A light bedtime snack. Many people find that warm milk increases sleepiness because it contains a natural sedative amino acid. Yuck. How about this? Avoid stimulants such as caffeine, which is found in coffee, tea, and certain soft drinks, particularly Mountain Dew. Don't take naps during the day. Of course, if you sleep during the day, you'll probably have a tougher time sleeping at night. Exercise each day, but not within three hours of your bedtime. Avoid too much stimulation, such as violent TV shows or computer games before sleep. Don't watch television or use your computer or cell phone or tablet in your bedroom. Now this one, try to go to bed at the same time every night and wake up the same time each morning. Or this one, avoid tobacco products, especially before you sleep. That seems to make sense to me. If you fall asleep with a lit cigarette in your mouth and it catches your bed on fire, you're likely to wake up. Well, when I have a hard time getting to sleep, I do what David did. Addressing God in Psalm 63, 6, he wrote this. I lay awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Instead of thinking about myself and my problems, I try to end my day by meditating on God, specifically his attributes. I list some of them in my mind, and then I praise God for them and thank him for the fact that he's this way. Let me give you some examples of this. I always start with the same attribute, his... uh, Aseity, that means his self-existence. It's defined as the state or quality of existing in oneself without external cause. Everyone and everything in the universe is dependent, ultimately on God. God alone is independent, self-sufficient, self-determining. When Moses asked God what he should say to the Israelites who asked who sent him, God said, I am what I am. Tell him that I am has sent you. I also then ponder the fact that God's eternal. You know, some people say, well, if God made everything, if everything was made, well, then who made God? But that's like asking if all squares have four sides, how come the circle doesn't have four sides? Because a circle is not a square. God, by definition, is an eternal being. He was from everlasting to everlasting. 
Then I think about the fact that God's triune. The God we worship has eternally existed, subsisting in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Relationships matter because there are relationships in the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have loved each other and delighted in each other from all eternity past. I think about the fact that God's unchanging. He can't get better. He's already the best. He can't improve. He's already perfect. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Psalm 170, or 47, 5 says this, God is great, or great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Now, speaking of power, I meditate on the fact that God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And that he's sovereign. He controls and determines everything. And then I ponder the fact that God is holy, exalted, and unlike any other. And one of the aspects of his holiness is his moral purity. Habakkuk said, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And what of the truth that God is righteous and just? I remind myself of that after I think about some of the things that I read about politicians doing in our country. They're not going to get away with it. But then I think about the fact that I have to stand before God in judgment. And I console myself with the truth that God is merciful and ready to show grace to sinners like me. And he proved it by sending his son to die for my sins. Then I think about the fact that God's kind and patient and slow to anger and quick to forgive. I think about the fact that he's faithful in keeping all of his promises, that he's generous and loving, and that he plans on spending all of eternity thinking of new ways to impress his people, those that he's given to his son as a gift. As it says in Ephesians 2, 4-7, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, ages plural to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So as I'm going through these attributes of God when I'm laying on my bed and meditating on him and thanking him for who he is, two, one of two things always happens. Either I fall asleep in the process or I'm so pumped up full of adrenaline that I'm wide awake and I think, well, I didn't really need to sleep tonight anyways. Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds interesting, Pastor. Maybe I'll try that tonight, but I'm not sure how that fits in with our text. Well, here's how it does. Our God is a God of infinite wisdom. Now, knowledge and wisdom are connected, but they're not synonymous. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is the appropriate use of information and knowledge to bring about a desired end. Now, Paul closes the book of Romans with a paean of praise to God for what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. But according to verse 27, he does so specifically directing it to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So today, we want to end our time in Romans by celebrating the wisdom of God displayed in the cross of Christ. But to do so, we're actually going to have to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I want to pray, and then we're going to turn to that and read to the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. We're preaching about the cross, and that's the most important thing in the entire universe. So bless us and feed us with your word this morning. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now turn to 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 18. Here's what it says, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
for deeds. Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are being called, or who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things that are wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world that he might shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in this, or boast in the Lord. Now speaking of the word of the cross, there's four things that we find in here about the cross. First of all, that it divides men. First is that it divides men. Secondly, that it destroys human wisdom. Destroys human wisdom. That's going to be, the first one's going to be verse 18. The second is 19 to 21. Third, it displays God's wisdom. That's 22 to 25. And finally, it removes all human boasting. And that's 26 to 31. The cross divides men. We're living in a time where our society is divided and polarized, aren't we? It's certainly true when it comes to politics. It's the case now that people don't simply disagree with each other, but they vilify whoever doesn't hold the same political positions that they do. We have protests and counter-protests. Sometimes they break into riots. They used to say that you should never bring up religion and politics and polite society should stick to things like the weather. But we can't even talk about the weather anymore because it might turn into the argument about global warming. Well, people can be divided in many ways. Old, young, rich, poor, rural, resident, urban city dweller. But the one division that Paul points out here, a division of eternal significance, is the division between those who accept the message of the cross And those who don't. Let's back up one verse to 17. It says this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now you have to understand the Corinthians in their day were impressed by wisdom. Both the content of it and those who delivered it with great rhetorical skill. What Paul would call cleverness of speech. You see, the Greeks put a high value on those who could speak and debate well. Just like people would go and fill an auditorium for a rock concert today, in Paul's day, people would come out in droves to hear philosophers and debaters. Christopher Hitchin was a British author, columnist, and journalist who was probably best known for being an atheist. He wrote a book a number of years ago called God is Not Great. He died of throat cancer back in 2011. Now, there's many atheists besides Hitchens, but what propelled him to the top was the fact that he had a way with words. I mean, he could turn a phrase and he could speak with great verve. And in every age, there's a received wisdom, a set of values, a worldview, which is accepted, especially by the elite of the society. And the Corinthians were enamored and impressed with the wisdom of their day, even as many in the church today accommodate the wisdom of ours. But if we're faithfully preaching the message of Christ of the cross, you find that that message never fits in and is acceptable to worldly wisdom. Look what he says in verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now notice the division that Paul is concerned with here is the division between different responses to the gospel. For some who hear, it's just simply foolishness. For others, It shows itself to be the very power of God 
when they hear it and believe it. Now, I have to tell you, it's hard for us to understand this many years past Jesus, just how offensive the gospel message of a crucified Messiah was. I mean, think about it, how absurd this would be. The idea that a young Jewish virgin in Palestine had given birth in a stable and that her baby was the creator of the universe who had become man. Even more preposterous that this man who was crucified as a criminal by the Romans rose three days later from the dead and that by believing this message, all of humanity's problems can be solved. You know, there was a bit of graffiti back, or found back in 1857 in Italy. It was uh, scratched on a plaster wall and uh, it showed a man who was being crucified on a cross, but he had a donkey uh, head where his human head would be. And then there's a man bowing in front of him, and underneath it says, Alexamenos worships his God. I mean, to die on the cross was considered the most ignoble and shameful way to die. Roman citizens could not be crucified, no matter what they did, because it was considered too demeaning. Only slaves and enemies of the state were crucified. The message of the cross is still foolishness to people. Chuck Swindoll, if you're familiar with him, mentioned a sermon that I heard one time that he was on a plane and uh, he struck up a conversation with a guy who was sitting next to him. And in a short time, it got onto religious issues. And so he took the time to just take out a napkin and draw and diagram the gospel for the man. The man took a look at it and then he said this, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. John Shelby Spong was a one-time bishop of an Episcopal church He wrote a number of books, including Why Christianity Must Change or Die, or this one, Resurrection, Myth and Reality. In a lecture he gave a few years back, Spong mocked the death of Christ on the cross for our sins with these words, quote, By absorbing the punishment that we deserve, Jesus somehow was said to have satisfied God's need for righteousness. So we began to say interesting things and bizarre things, like Jesus died for my sins. It started a Christian guilt trip that became present at Sunday morning worship every week and crept into our everyday prayers, becoming a mantra. This is not acceptable relationship to have with God. I mean, begging for mercy and being told that we're a population of sinners and miserable wretches does not help anyone. We should not sit in a place of worship and feel guilty or uncomfortable. That guy was the bishop of a church. Some in the past used to mock Christianity as slaughterhouse religion with all of its talk about sacrifice. The liberal church pastor, Harry Emerson Fosdick, back in the 1920s, said the idea of Christ dying on a cross for our sins was a pre-civilized barbarity. But to whom is the message of the cross foolishness? Paul says it's to those who are perishing. Notice Paul does not say that it's foolishness to those who will perish someday, but are, present tense, perishing. We talk about a person dying of cancer. What we mean is that the cancer day by day is destroying their body and eventually it's going to take their life. Those who count the message of the cross of Christ as foolishness are in the process of perishing, being destroyed by sin little by little and eventually they'll breathe their last and go into a Christless eternity. I mean, imagine a man standing in uh, quicksand, seemingly ignorant of the fact that he's sinking and he's making these mocking statements about Christ even as he sinks. I mean, a God who's going to judge my sin. Yeah, right. 
I don't believe that. A Jewish carpenter who rescues those who trust him. That's nonsense. All the while, he's going deeper and deeper, getting closer and closer to his neck until finally it goes over his head and you see just a few more bubbles. I saw a video clip of that Bishop Spong on the program Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. They mocked the Bible. They mocked the idea that Christ was the only way to God. Well, John Shelby Spong died last September. One second after he died, he realized that it was not the message of the cross that was foolishness, but his own human wisdom that brought him to a Christless eternity. Now, on the other side are those who here understand and accept the message of the cross, that Jesus took the punishment for their sins, and for them it becomes the power of God. It's demonstrated in their life when they believe and continue to believe so as to be saved, and that it keeps them all the way until the end. So the cross always has and always will divide men, resulting in some being saved and others perishing. That brings us to the second point, though. The cross destroys human wisdom. This is verses 19 to 20. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This is taken from Isaiah 29. When I preached through Isaiah a number of years ago, I showed that this chapter speaks of the ultimate rescue and redemption of the nation of Israel. But until that time, before that time comes, the nation will be in a spiritual stupor. It says in verse 10 of that chapter, For the Lord has poured out over the spirit, or over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut the eyes of the prophets, and he's covered your heads, the seers. God then goes on to criticize the people of Judah for their hypocritical man-made religion. Then the Lord said this, Because this people draw near, with the, near to me with their lips, but they're are near with their words and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are removed from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of the wise man will perish, and the discernment of the discerning man will be concealed. Now the wondrous, marvelous thing that he's going to do would be to send his son to die for sinners on a cross. But think about it. Who saw that coming? Did the rabbis? Did the philosophers? Was Jesus hailed by the Senate of Rome when his birth was announced? John puts it this way. There is a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He, meaning Jesus, was the light. Or he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believed on his name, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. John 1, 9-13. Now Paul throws down the gauntlet at this point by asking a question. He says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wise man would be philosophers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. The scribes would be the Jewish rabbis like Hillel and Shemael, or Shemay and uh, Gamaliel. And the debaters of the age would be the learned men who argued over the issues of that time. I mean, in our day, it's the political pundits, the university professors, people in the think tank. They include the media elites, wealthy people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, innovators like Steve Jobs, talk show hosts like Oprah, all the well-connected movers and shakers, the shapers of opinion and trends. Almost all of them are perishing, aren't they? For all their brilliance, the Greek philosophers never discovered God. The most they came up with was a first mover, 
And think about us. You know, I don't know about you if you think about it ever, but have you ever thought about how stunning it is that the fact that we left this planet and went to the moon? That is by far the greatest achievement we've ever actually accomplished. Don't you think it's odd that we can find a way to put a man on the moon and possibly even to Mars, but we can't figure out a way to get people to heaven? We never have. That brings us to our third point, though, where we learn that the cross displays the wisdom of God. It's this, this, in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, we cannot know about God unless he first reveals himself to us. And the way he does ultimately is through the Bible, which points to his son. But when Paul speaks of coming to a knowledge of God, to know God, he's not speaking about a theoretical knowledge, but about a personal, uh, experiential knowledge. The the kind that comes only through understanding and accepting the gospel message. You see, it's by the preaching of the message of Christ crucified for sins, a message that the world deems foolishness, that God saves people who simply believe it and respond to it. You remember what Jesus said about this? He rejoiced about the fact that God had revealed this to some people and hidden it for others. After condemning the people in the cities where he had done so many of his miracles and yet they didn't believe, he goes on to praise God saying this in Matthew eleven twenty five to 27. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and you've revealed it to the babes. Yes, Father, this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Paul goes on to say, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. You see, the Jews were the empiricists of the day. They demanded miraculous signs as evidence. The Greeks were the rationalists. They, they wanted something that was intellectually satisfying. But in verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. I mean, think about it. To the Jewish people, the message of a crucified Messiah was offensive and repulsive because their idea of a Messiah was to be a warrior king who would come and deliver Israel from Rome, not a savior who would come and deliver Israel from their sins. They wanted a king sitting on a throne in glory, not a king hanging on a cross in shame. But isn't that exactly what the title said above Jesus when he hung on a cross? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. But if they had understood the wisdom of God, the Jews of that day would have recognized that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the glory of God was in full display. For in dying on the cross for our sins, he was showing God in his most glorious, beautiful and loving way. But you know, the deeper problem for the Jews, or for actually for anyone who's religious but not saved, is that the message of the cross strikes at self-righteousness. Paul speaks of how Israel stumbled over their Messiah earlier in this book when he said this, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained righteousness, that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued it the law as a way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written. See, I will lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them to fall. And the one who believes in him, the Messiah, will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved. For I can testify to you that they have a zeal for God 
but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. Because Christ is the culmination of the law, the goal of the law, the end of the law, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. And what about the Greeks? You remember when Paul preached in, uh, at Mars Hill? Taking a notice of an altar that they had that said to an unknown God, Paul decided to make known to them what they admitted they were ignorant of. But how did they respond? Especially when he mentioned the resurrection. He said some began to sneer, but others said, well, we'll hear you later concerning this. You know, I'll bet there were people who went home that day and said, you know, well, when he comes next time, we'll be here. But then they had a family get together. They never came back. They never heard. They perished. But some joined and believed. Among them was a Dionysus, the Aragopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and a few others with him. You see, Jews and Greeks had different reasons for rejecting the message of the gospel, but reject it they did, and since that day, Englishmen and Frenchmen and Americans and Chinese and Russians, Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists, hundreds of other categories made up of billions of people, continue to perish because in their way of thinking, according to the wisdom of this world, they deem the message to be foolishness. Now, if the whole world were to perish in its unbelief because they rejected the message of the cross, God would be just in letting everyone go their merry way on to hell. But the good news is that he wasn't willing to let the whole race perish. The message of the cross is stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentiles as a whole, but, verse 24, but to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Who are the called? Well, for the most part, as Jesus said, it's not from people who are wise and intelligent. Jesus said that God hides it from most of those people. God, out of his grace and his mercy, has chosen to open our once blind eyes to see the wisdom and the power of God. That brings us to our last point, though. Because he does it this way, it removes all human boasting. You ever heard that phrase, motley crew? Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking when I say motley crew. If you're in a certain time segment, you're thinking of a band. But the phrase motley crew according to the definition I read, speaks of a roughly organized assembly of individuals of various backgrounds, appearances, and characters. It goes back to the Middle Ages. It was used, the word motley was used of the clothes that a court jester would wear, you know, all the multiple colors. And Paul will later say that as, uh, to the Corinthians that he and the other disciples are fools for Christ. Now Paul attacks the Corinthians' great esteem that they have for social status uh, by reminding them that really they were a motley crew in a sense, when God called them to faith in Christ. He says this, For consider your calling, brethren. There are not many of you who are wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you are mighty, not many noble. Now, by calling here, Paul means the internal call of God as he speaks to the heart of people. You know, the state fair is going on right now. I saw one, it was a video, a state fair in Iowa. You know they have hog calling contests. Well, this one wasn't a hog calling contest, it was a husband calling contest. One woman's won five years in a row. George! George! <laughs> now, Jesus doesn't call hogs. But he does call sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember not only how they came to faith, but he also wanted them to think about where and what they were when they came to faith. Were they among the wise? 
Were any of them philosophers? Did they have degrees from the University of Athens? Are there many PhDs in the church today? Were they drawn from the mighty, those who had political power? How many presidents do you suppose there have been that are genuine Christians? Not many. How about the noble? Did any of the Corinthians come from the patrician class in Rome? Probably not. Maybe they were from the equestrian class? Probably not. Some would have been from the plebeians. Most of them would have been freedmen or slaves. And today, in India, most of the people get saved. They don't come from the high-class Brahmins, but from the low-class untouchables. I mean, how many of the aristocracy in Europe ever came to genuine faith? Having a name like DuPont or Kennedy or Vanderbilt, does that make it more or less likely that you'll be saved? You're more apt to be saved if you live in a trailer park in the Ozarks than a penthouse apartment in Manhattan. More are drawn from Christ, or to Christ from prison than from judges' chambers. And honestly, how many movie stars ever come to faith? James, in his letter, rebukes his readers for being impressed by wealth and catering to the wealthy when they came to the church. He said this in James 2, 1 to 8. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and you also have a man who comes in with, who's poor with dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine uh, clothes and say, You sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, Now, now you stand over there or sit at my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You know, one commentator pointed out something. He said, if your church doesn't have some down-and-outers in it, you're failing. Now, none of this suggests that God hates the rich or that the government should therefore be confiscating the money of the wealthy and giving it to the poor. But it does mean that majority of those who ever come to faith are going to be saved not from the mighty and the wise and the noble and the wealthy. But why? Is it because poor people are naturally more humble and tender-hearted? No, I've met some very arrogant and nasty poor people. Those who sentimentalize the poor should try delivering mail to the trailer park. Then how is it that more poor people and insignificant people, average Joe types, get saved than the sophisticated and the well-heeled. It's because God's designed it that way. Paul goes on in verse 27 to tell us what God has chosen and why. He says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised things of the world. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. The foolish, the weak, the base, the despised that God has chosen to overturn the world include the cross and all the people God has chosen to be saved through the message of the cross. I mean, what the world boasts about, power, prestige, pride, human wisdom, achievement, God has overturned all those things by bestowing salvation upon nobodies like us through the preaching of the cross. And what's his ultimate goal in this? It says in 29, so that nobody can boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think I've mentioned a couple times in my sermons that I listened to a program called um, Jews for Judaism. It's an anti-missionary website apologetics group where it's rabbis refuting Christianity 
and trying to keep Jews from converting to it or to take Jews back who have. One of the guys who heads it up is a man named Michael Skobak. And uh, he's done something very interesting over the last several years. He's gone through entire books of the New Testament, refuting them as he goes through. I think it's interesting because generally he interprets it pretty correctly and accurately. He just doesn't agree with any of it. But I was watching one the other day, and he's, he was getting into a place, and maybe it, even, it might have been this passage in Romans here. But he said, you know, I don't know why it is, he said, but for some reason, for this Apostle Paul, he just, he just does not like the idea that humans could take any credit for what they've done. He said, I don't know why that bothers him so much. You know why that bothered Paul so much? Because it bothered God so much. God created this world as a stage for his son to perform the drama of redemption on. He intends for his son to get all the credit, all the praise, and all the glory for anybody who is ever saved. You know, a vampire can only be killed by driving a wooden stake through his heart. Human pride can only be destroyed by driving a wooden cross through our hearts. And when God has, then we sing songs with words like, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Has that happened to you yet? Have you understood the wisdom of God displayed in the cross of Christ? Have you understood that there's nothing you can do to save yourself? That you're a sinner rightfully under the wrath of God? And that your only hope is that if you cry out to God, he would hear your cry and rescue you? If that hasn't happened to you, ask him. Ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to give you a new heart. Ask him to grant you the gift of faith and repentance. I had one of the kids in confirmation a number of years ago. And uh, he, was, he was a tough kid to teach and, and uh, still pray for him. But one time I asked him a couple questions. I said, can I ask you a question? I said, have you ever thanked God for anything in your life? And he paused and he wasn't being smart aleck or anything. He reflected and he said, mm, no. I said, never once? Nope. I said, you're not saved. I said, let me ask you another question. Have you ever actually asked God to save you? And he said, No. I said, then why would you think he would? Come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if that has happened to you, if you've responded so that you've received Christ, then make him the treasure of your heart and the confidence of your faith. Because if you do, you'll be able to rest easy at night, even if you still can't get to sleep. Rest in Christ and glory on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I think about the words in one of the songs, what more can he say than to you who is, he has said, to you who for refuge, refuge to Jesus has fled. Or that's what it means to be a Christian, to flee to Jesus for refuge. Father, in a room like this, and certainly for those who are going to be listening over the internet, 
there's going to be many, many people who've never responded. I pray that today you'd open their eyes and their hearts, that they would believe and find the eternal life that you give as a gift. We have confidence in your word, Lord. We pray that we would see its power, even today. For we ask in Jesus' name.